We are Michael Vesey in London, England. And Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. More importantly, you are the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be. We're here to get you there. For show notes with links and resources mentioned today and for other GC resources like downloads, just visit our blog, theecommerceleader.com. A total addressable market is the total number of people who can buy your product or your type of product. But how do you find them? How do you know how large the audience is? Are there shortcuts to finding them? Are there hazards to avoid as you do this type of work? Well, in this episode, we're going to break down all of those topics, give you tips and ideas for how to get after this idea of finding and serving your total addressable market. Michael, I'm really excited about this conversation because I get the feeling that a lot of people need to do this work, but don't actually have tools uh, available to them to do it. And I feel like this might be a good little toolbox for people to use. What's your perspective? Is is the idea of clarifying and going after total addressable market and serving it something that you hear people talking about in your small group and your mastermind or is this sort of skipped over interesting question i think it's under discussed really and it's kind of discussed but it's implicit in the way people use tools for example if you're using ahrefs for google seo for uh, your own store direct to consumer or Helium 10, or the other tools like that for Amazon sellers. But I think people rely on tools, and the tools give them a number, but they're not really conceptualizing what is this number, and what is it really telling me. For example, Helium 10's Chrome extension will give you the total revenue for positions 1 to 60 on Amazon in response to a certain keyword, and that feels like an accurate and precise total addressable market number. But what is it you're actually doing? That revenue, for example, is based, even though it's in response to a keyword search... Is actually a summary of the product-based revenue. So there's immediately a problem because, okay, what is it you're actually measuring? Well, it's kind of a weird blend of two things, whereas really for private label or custom product development, you need to know the value of a niche driven by a cluster of keywords. So one of the things we've got to do, I think, and we can do today, I hope, is to clarify conceptually what is it we're trying to measure? What is it we're getting out mm-hmm. of this? And it's a very real question that I'm, I'm about to do a bit of product research for one of my European-based clients who's selling on a European marketplace, but not on Amazon yet. And I'm going to have a look mm-hmm. on Amazon.de, the German version. And this is exactly the sort of question we're trying to clarify because he's given me a list of criteria. And I'm like, okay, what is it we're asking? One of the implicit questions is what's the total addressable market? So mm-hmm. really important question to address. Love it. Yeah, great stuff. All right. Well, let's get into it then. I do have a list, nine related questions to go over. Are we ready to jump into the list or what do you you think? Yeah, let's do it. So what's your first question? Yeah. First question is, is it an uncommitted or a switchable total addressable market? And the idea here is that it really doesn't matter so much what the total addressable market is. It really matters actually what the market is that you can win for yourself. And so you have to find out whether this is a a group of people that are out there that are unserved and you can serve them or whether they're committed already to an existing brand. And, and, And that's one of the first questions I like to think about is kind of what is the status of the marketplace you're trying to enter or operate in? And I think this question of a switchable TAM is a good first starting question. And, and because because in the absence of understanding what's happening in the marketplace, the numbers will not help you. You know, like just a number doesn't answer the question, can you, you know, is it switchable or not? Just at, at the top level. So that's kind of my first first thought, first question is begin to really ask yourself the question, is it com- a committed group of 
people to another brand or set of brands, or are they are they yours for the taking, if you will? Yeah, great question. And uh, it's a classic. I totally agree. This is a, an important question. Classic newbie error is to get excited about total market revenue. And all that matters really is how much you can win for your, your own brand and win profitably. Because if you win market share on Amazon by spending a ton of uh, money on ads, which is the classic thing you do and reduce your price, then that's no use either. Yeah. The more subtle error that people make is to get into a market where a certain percentage of people will switch and some won't, mm -hmm. but the ones who switch are not very desirable because they switch mm -hmm. for price reasons. And that's actually on Amazon. Yeah. Even quite established sellers fall into that. And then even worse, they know it, but they fall into the trap of keeping going because I've got to just have that product selling it. What are they just called a brand awareness or whatever they, they use as a way of saying I'm making sales with almost no profits mm -hmm. or tying up inventory, you know, money into inventory for 12 months. So yeah, it's a more, it's more pervasive than you might immediately think. Yeah. And um, what are your thoughts about this? What was the solution to this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great question and I think it's a discovery process. I mean, I, I you know, whether there's a specific once, you know, silver bullet solution, I'm not sure, but I think you're constantly in a discovery mode about your addressable market and the value proposition that they bring to you as a business and the value proposition you bring to them with your product or service. Uh, is kind of how I look at it. It's absolute sense, yeah. So discover, yeah, I think you're right. It's not a one and done thing. And that's another yeah. newbie area. You're right. It's more sophisticated to say, yeah, we're finding out. So what's the second question then after that? that yeah, this is an interesting one. The second question is, is it a fractured total addressable market or is it a fractal total addressable market? Now, a fractal is something that's the exact same you know, kind of pattern or, or, or you know, size or symbol or, or, or concept in multiple places all over, you know, the internet. And so the question behind this question is, are you going to find pockets of your addressable market in one or two specific amazing places? In that, in that case, it would be a fractured total addressable market. And there's these groupings of people, or is it a fractal uh, situation where there's the same percentage of customers on every marketplace you look at. So for example, think of a product on Amazon where you would say, well, you know, there's the, as a percentage of all Amazon sales, this product is going to do like, you know, a half a percent, you know, and that equals, you know, 50,000 transactions a month. And you go to walmart.com and as it happens, there's a huge number of customers on Walmart for, for that product as well. And then you go to eBay and there's a huge number of customers on eBay for that product. And you go to Wayfair, same thing. And you go to on and on all the marketplaces. That's a, that's a fractal situation. And really an omni-channel strategy is appropriate for a fractal situation because it means that you can go find your ideal customers, your addressable customers on every marketplace addition, in addition to your, your own website. But there are some products and some systems, some, you know, some services or products or product suites that just frankly don't exist on some of the marketplaces. And so that's a really, really important question. And, and it's important because I started our business on our own website because I could, I literally could not, by the terms of service, sell my product on Amazon or eBay. They didn't allow it. So I had to answer this question, like what, you know, what is happening here? And uh, so I think that's important to think through fractal versus fractured. What are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, it's it's a very in, important point. I guess you're talking about 
in simple terms, where is your market and mm-hmm. how how easy it is, is to address them in one place? And mm-hmm. I guess there's always an implication that the very specific keyword searches brings up a very unified market. And actually, you're right that it's not always the case. Sometimes they are mm-hmm. all on Amazon and none on everywhere else. And sometimes they're spread all over the place. I, I guess I would say also that the other thing to think about is in terms of market selection, whether you want to go after a very fractured market, because it does make life much more complex. And if you're dealing with physical product inventory, as opposed to in your case with Mm. the digital products, Mm -hmm. that means the distribution becomes a nightmare quite quickly, especially if you're dealing with a market as big as if you're sending across the USA, which most marketplaces would call the US, Mm -hmm. Amazon.com or eBay.com US, whatever. That's a huge physical area to serve. And if you're then also having to send things into warehouses or or based on multiple channels, doesn't mean one shouldn't do it, but I would always say that it's good to be very, very aware of the downsides and the costs and the, the complications mm-hmm. before you enter into a situation like that. Yeah, love it. Great. So number three, what's the uh, third thing? Number three is what's the total addressable market versus the market you've already served or the portion of the market you've already served? And the portion of your, the market you've already served falls into two categories. People that are happily buying from you and will continue to, or people who you served and they've walked away from you. And it's really, really important to understand that second part, you know, because if you do a ton of marketing, but you can't keep customers bonded to you, it's like the back door of the, what, the metaphor, whatever the metaphor is, the back door of the bus or the, the back door of the train is open and people keep falling off the back. And so this whole idea of whether you can serve, you know, part of the market and and really connect with them or whether it's a churn where you're just constantly trying to get them to buy and then they do and then they never come back. Understanding that as in relation to the total addressable market, I think, is a critical thing to think through. Interesting. I mean, I guess that's uh, related not so much just to market selection or market sizing as really the quality of the product or the relationship between your products Mm -hmm. and the audience. I guess you could have a quality product in the sense of manufacturing quality is very good, but it doesn't really, the the way you market it, it means it keeps ending up in the hands of consumers for whom it doesn't really solve the problems. And on the Mm -hmm. alternatively, if you're just really great at marketing and getting that right, then I suppose those are the sorts of things that I would think of when you're talking about happy versus unhappy or repeat customers. Mm The other thing I think is really worth saying is this, that particularly for Amazon sellers out there listening to this, the there is now, even within the Amazon universe, the subscribe and save option. I was talking to a guy mm-hmm. for the podcast a couple of days ago for the 10K Collective podcast who buys Amazon businesses. And he's not huge level aggregator. So he's got a bit more of a nuanced kind of tailored, what's the word, boutique way of selecting businesses. They buy mm-hmm. about one a month. So they're a bit more selective. And he's saying, yeah, the subscription model is really important. There's also lots of books out there. Is it Manilow's uh, The Automatic Customer that talks about the value of that, the MRR, monthly recurring mm-hmm. revenue. So I think this ability to keep people happy and have some element of recurring is is really, really, really important. It may not look that dramatic on your profit and loss, but the the multiple of that profit as a percentage of the business value is going to be like 5, 10x as opposed to 3x mm-hmm. for an Amazon business, for example. Yeah, I love, love those ideas. And you're right. The monthly recurring revenue is valuable to think about. The Shopify systems allow now for a buy and save recurring subscription program product as well. So that's easily achieved through Shopify. I'll tell you the reason this uh, question is important. The worst scenario to be in is in a really small niche market and have a product that doesn't serve the customer that well and be a really good marketer. 
Because what you'll do is you'll expose your entire total addressable market to your product. They will have seen what you are offering and will have decided you're not the answer in their life. (laughs) And then what do you do? It's like, then you have a real problem. So understanding, you know, this relation to the people you've served, the people you haven't served and how happy they are is critical, you know, to think through. So the marketers should beware when they think through whether they should be advertising, promoting, marketing their product or not to a small niche. Yeah. yeah, that's a really great reality check. And here's what I would say, again, with um, the, the Amazon selling scene is utterly obsessed with marketing hacks and, and it's gradually yeah. growing up. But I, I would say this, the most important thing is to have a fantastic product development process that really checks at a really tiny scale first, mm-hmm. whether people are really happy with your product, whether who yeah. it's really for rather than who you think it's for. And again, look, it's a discovery process, but I would rather discover it with 10 people yeah. than... 10,000. And the trouble with Amazon is it scales so quickly, you can scale up a terrible product very fast. And then you've done exactly Mm -hmm. what you said. And you've cooked your goose because Amazon is great at SEO. So if people Google Mm -hmm. your product, and there are terrible Amazon reviews, they are going to find that very easily. So you're 100% right. And I think it's really important to go in stages and to to circle back around to ever refine your product development as as a flip side of of marketing. You're right, because great marketing and terrible product is a total disaster. And you're absolutely right. By the way, that's like the class Classic Amazon private label launch number one. That's like exactly what you just said. Mediocre product, lots and lots of marketing dollars. I wouldn't say great marketing, but you know, effective getting exposure, really good reviews, everything dies. Yeah. But yeah. you're totally right on that one. Well, look, really, really great stuff so far. Now the next one, number four, this is a really critical question as well. What's yeah, this question? The fourth question is really sort of out of the forward to my new book, e-commerce power. And and the question is, is it an undominated niche? And then question number five, this this follow-on question would be, or is it a dominated niche? You really, really need to think through whether it's a total addressable market that's under the spell of an amazing product. And if that's the case, if there's someone who's won the day, you, you really want to think about what you're doing. Or is it a situation where there is no dominant service provider or product? And in that context, you have to ask the, yourself the question, why? You know, is you know, is is there a reason why there's no you know dominant niche player, or or is it is it just an opportunity? And uh, and so understanding that is really critical. You don't want to be in a situation where you think there's gold, but it turns out to be fool's gold. And so understanding what dominant players exist is it a monopoly situation? Is it a duopoly where there's a a big one and a second big one, and those two dominate or not? That, I think that's a critical question to ask. Yeah. Absolutely agree. I mean, really, one of the most sacred principles there is out there that I've seen so massively justified by Amazon sellers. So I would say it's so such a driver is the star principle, which is very old school, goes back to the 1960s. But it is really a question of how dominant your product can be. And I really think it's critical to, if you can, just go for non-dominated niches. But as you said, is it fool's goal? So you've got to look at whether it's worth <laughs> having. But I think if you, if a market is dominated by a leader, first of all, there are two problems with it. First of all, you're going to have to knock them off the top spot if it's a small niche, or mm-hmm. you're going to have to position yourself very, very strongly against them. But here's the thing. If you're positioning your trainers against Nike, for example, then Nike kind of controls that. If Nike decides to move the goalposts and you're positioning against their goalposts, they control that. So that's yeah. one risk. That's right. Um, 
the other thing is that so for example if you think nike you know used to have allegedly i'm not saying this is true on the podcast use sweatshops now if there's a perception of that and you're absolutely the opposite and deeply moral and, and organic and renewable and everything else good fantastic but you're still kind of positioning against that and if those guys sort that out and make that right. part of their marketing then you've lost that edge the other thing is this that going into a market dominated by somebody means you're only really going to have great value in that market if you're after a particular type of keyword or particular type of need if you can beat them and it's quite mm -hmm. rare to beat somebody who's very established because they have a kind of little flywheel that keeps them up at the yeah. top as we've discussed already they've got a moat around it already yeah. And a lot of people are very, very optimistic about their ability to outmarket some pretty major players. So, yeah, I agree that you've got to be really cautious with that. It, it is a weird dynamic to think through because it, you definitely don't want to be tilting windmills and trying to go after a market that's really dominated by someone successfully. And to your point, I think in summation of what you just described is the old saying, it's easier to play defense than it is to play offense in the, this type of situation. In marketing warfare, Al Reese and Jack Trout, the defensive player is so much more well-suited because to your point, you know, if a competitor says, we're green and they're not, well, two weeks later, they, you know, you can say, well, we're green too. And by the way, no one's <laughs> heard of those guys. And we all have, we yeah. have all the other benefits of being the top leader and now we're green. Yeah. And so, so it's so much easier to play defense, I think, is is a key part of this. Yeah, absolutely. And for example, I mean, there are a lot of players, because my, my mum's obsessed with environmental type stuff and always has been. Yeah. So my parents invest in an organic farm back in the 1980s, which was just ahead of the trend. And that's why it died. Yeah. If they did it now, they'd die because people like Tesco's or Asda yeah. or whatever, and in and, and America, Walmart or whoever it is are very invested in that now and it's become part of normal culture and they've got the supply chain to do it cheaper and they've got the marketing dollars yeah. to make more of a noise about it so i wouldn't really want to be in in either of those extremes somewhere in the yeah. early-ish days you could carve something out and become whole foods at some point later then amazon takes over whole foods and that was kind of an obvious play so there are certain sort of times in in the development of a market where it's a great idea to try and get in there yeah sometimes it's too early and there's no demand as you said is it fractured for a reason like nobody's really making any money mm -hmm. and then sometimes like that game's been played so i think it is about the trend and where you step yeah. into that trend that's really yeah. critical as well yeah i totally agree and then on the other side of it to say is it an undominated niche and you have an opportunity I do think there are tons and tons of small niches that are not dominated currently and that are waiting for someone to bring what you might call a professional approach to the to, to the market. And and I think the question there is what you're looking for is a community of market participants who are loyal to their topic. They're loyal to their, you know, they're, they're faithfully, you know, you know, consuming, buying, using, participating. They have informal networks and groups or events or whatever, and no one has taken them seriously. I think that's the thing to look for is a, a group of people who, frankly, they they have the energy and it's the marketers or the product sellers who have said, oh, well, that's just X, Y, Z. That's just too small or whatever. I mean, I think that's the, the opportunity is to look for an undominated niche. And, and most of the time it, it will be undominated because larger marketers have dismissed it because it's too small. I think the biggest mistake a small marketer can make is try to step into a large niche that has sophisticated marketers in it. In it. 
you're into you're stepping into a red ocean. But I think if you'll look for the blue lagoons, the little you know the small little opportunities that the big boys or big gals, you know what I mean, the big marketers would say, no, we're not going to serve that market. It's just too small. There's not enough none of people there. So we're going to avoid that one. And then you can say, wait, that sounds great to me. You know, I'll step in. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Well, two things. I mean, the obvious uh, point is that you and Cinnamon absolutely have done that with, you know, the sewing community, particularly the dolls clothes sewing community, which is so specific and niche. It sounds still absurd to say it to me, even though I know I've seen your example. The other thing to say, though, is this. If people are suspicious, like, oh, but doesn't that just mean that the big boys or gals are going to just enter that market? Well, no, it's a bit like, is a cruise liner going to come and dock at this tiny local port? Mm -hmm. It can't. And Warren Buffett, for example, has articulated... Even 10, 20 years ago, the problem he has with Berkshire Hathaway is that they have to invest such huge tranches of money, a billion dollars, five billion here, that they cannot invest in the the wonderful companies such that they used to invest in because Mm -hmm. they they can't park enough capital there. They end up buying Coca-Cola shares or whatever, because when you're trying to invest five billion, you need various things, I suppose, including the fact that you won't completely distort the market by buying 5% of the shares. Yep. The reason is because if they invest in those small marketplaces, and even if they double or triple or quadruple the sales, it just doesn't add up enough to move their needle on their top line revenue numbers. Mm-hmm. It, do- it, it doesn't get them where they need to be as a company in exactly. terms of their own growth goals. And so I, I think it is, it, it is frequently a mistake to overlook a small niche opportunity and, and try to say, oh, I need to find a big total addressable market. I would say to anybody listening to this conversation, you actually are hunting for a, the smallest possible total addressable market that have some of these characteristics we're talking about. Rather than saying, is it big enough? You should say, you know, is it too big? Is yeah. The idea. yeah. Love it. How small can it be? I mean, if yeah. you're trying to create a, a living for yourself and one family, yeah. initially, I mean, once you've got your foot in the door, you can then expand outwards, which is a whole other question, right? But yeah, you're right. I mean, how small can it be and still yeah. work is a beautiful question. I like yeah. that. I really like that. And by the way, that's not a question I ever hear Amazon sellers talking about. They've been seduced by, they've been trained by Amazon to think big, which means expand quickly and make Amazon a lot of money or at least a lot yeah. of sales. Or serve a lot of customers, which is yeah. what Amazon's goal is, of course. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So we, we've been well trained to serve Amazon's goals. Precisely right. And that, yes, you're right. How small can be is a wonderful question. I, I'm a believer by in that Swiss saying, small is beautiful. I, yeah. I love small businesses that are well run. Yeah. So I guess we're touching on your position. sort of question six here, aren't we really? What, yeah. What's this sixth question? Yeah. Number six and number seven, again, are kind of corollaries. The number six is, is it a loyal total addressable market? And number seven is, is it not, or is it not a loyal total address market. And let me just mention a few factors here. You know, is it a loyal addressable, a total addressable market? If it, if that is true, if, if they will, if the customers will bond with your brand, then it will add value to your business over time. It will be accretive over time and additional income revenue, the numbers of email subscribers and, you know, total transactions, they all go up over time. If your total addressable market is in essence, willing to bond with you or be loyal to you. And this is very, very exciting if you're entering into an undominated niche because it's setting you up for a home run. You've got customers who are willing to be loyal to a good product maker or service provider or, you know, a a brand. And you've got nobody dominating the niche. That setup is like green light all the way. Go, go forward, you know, step into it. But then again, if it's a loyal total addressable market and it's 
a dominated niche and you are not the person dominating it, <laughs> then it's a real concern because you say to yourself, wow, these people seem to be really loyal and they're not loyal to me. And I'm not sure I can switch them off of the Apple pop products or, you know what I mean? Like there, there's a million examples. I can't get them to switch off of Tesla, you know, if you're a car maker or whatever. And I think this is important to think through now on the not loyal part, there could be plenty of reasons. Maybe it's a seasonal purchasing situation, you know, where every Christmas they buy the same thing and they don't care who they get it from. You know, maybe it's, maybe they're price sensitive purchasers in this market t- that you're going to enter. And candidly, all they're looking for is the lowest price. And they don't care who provides it to them because it's a commodity type item. Or third thing it could be is maybe they're just all convenience shoppers and they're just looking to have whatever they need. They don't care where, where they get it. They just want it ASAP. It's really about just, is it a convenience item to them? And loyalty is not really top of mind. And I think these are all questions to ask in this, you know, in regard to this loyalty idea. Yeah, this is great stuff. I, I really like this because what's what's becoming clear to me, and this is a really, you know, we really, this is a way of looking at things that is really making me reassess this. So this is totally a conversation that all e-commerce sellers have to have, even yeah. startups, well, especially startups, because they spend their lives going, here, what am I going to sell? Yeah, uh, It strikes me we want really three things. First of all, we want switchable because if they're not going to switch, then it's a waste of time. So if you're trying to sell kitchen mm-hmm. products uh, in a totally dominated market, they're not going to leave, you know, or mm-hmm. some great brand um, yeah. or Nike if you're selling trainers yeah. for some other product, unless it's totally cheap. We want something ideally not dominated by somebody else because then we don't have to fight to take market share off and the risk that we don't even win enough market share to become the dominant player. And then the other yeah. thing is, I really like this distinction, you, John. We want people who are potentially loyal, but haven't got a brand ready to be loyal to yet. And then you can win their loyalty by, by serving them better than anyone else. Like exactly like you've done with uh, Pixie yeah. Fair, that you, you and Cinnamon have, have served a really passionate but underserved community. And you become the people that they're loyal to now. I, I would hate to go into that community so. apart from my ignorance <laughs> about it and go and try and compete with you guys because I've been competing with a red wall of... Of, or, or a blue wall, whichever wall it, yeah, color yeah. it is, yeah. of people who go, no, we we absolutely love Pixie Fair. We're not going to be bother with VZ dresses, <laughs> whatever it is. <laughs> so yeah, I really yeah. love that clarification. This is yeah. great. So I know we've got two more questions left and then five ways to find your time. So what are the two more questions that we should be asking? Yeah, the, the, the eighth one is real quick because we've kind of touched on it already. And that is, is it a total addressable market that you can win from a competitor? Or are you going to be the first person to serve them? the first time, you know, that they've used a product of your type and, or, you know, or do you have to win them, you know, against, you know, from away from a competitor? I think that's an important question. And then I'll just do the ninth question real quick, which is, I think it's really critical to understand, is it a total addressable market that is shrinking and in decline? You know, are you trying to sell eight track cassette tapes or DVDs, or is it a total addressable market that is a hot trend? And maybe too hot, make like a fad, or is it a slow burn, positive to right direction? And this trend line of the total addressable market, I think, is super critical to understand. And here's the thing: it might be the case that a shrinking trend line declining is the reason why no marketers are serving the community, and it might be an opportunity actually. So it's not as simple as just saying, "Oh, it's shrinking. I'm not going to participate." You know, you have to ask the question, what is the real world dynamic going on in terms of other competitors? But understanding that trend line, I think, is really critical. Yeah, I love that. As we were talking about before, that the whole trend thing, I think there is a moment where it's too early. 
and there is yeah. a moment where it's totally dominated by somebody else. And and uh, that, I think that's true for pretty much every trend. I was talking about organic stuff because it occurred yeah. because my parents have been obsessed with it for, for forever. But that, that's true for pretty much everything. And one of the things that happens online, but particularly on Amazon, even relative to Google, is that these things can happen in a matter of months. So it goes from mm-hmm. a hot opportunity to over. Yeah. One of the things, of course, is uh, fidget spinners, which I confess right. that at some point I did consider, like everyone else, probably with my business <laughs> part at the time, we looked into it and went... Matt, instinctively with this is going to be over or something nasty is going to happen the regulation and then the next thing you know i think the germans were banning a lot of people from importing it and, and actually uh, selling it on amazon at all as a category so an awful yeah. lot of people end up with a container load of, of uh, spinners so yeah. that's an example of too hot and um, i really like the fact that also just because there's a dying market really love that you can make a lot of money in a dying market one of the richest people in mm-hmm. britain that i've ever heard of um Try and remember his name. Somebody, Dennis. I'll, I'll look it up. But he he became like about worth uh, about a billion dollars, roughly. Mm-hmm. And most of his money was made in magazines, which even when he went into it was a dying industry. Mm-hmm. But my goodness, it took a long time to die, and it's still a place you could make money now. So that's a really great observation. I like that a lot. Totally. No, I totally agree with that. And it's really important to understand the lay of the land. You just you, these are things that <clears throat> excuse me. These are things you just have to understand and stew in over time and really, you know, think about, obsess over, research. You cannot enter a new market and understand any of these things on day one. You just can't. I mean, so, which is why, you know, some of these choices and decisions have to be done methodically over time. And you learn these lessons through, you know, hard work and understanding. And sometimes you realize after weeks or months or years of operating in a market, these these ideas come to you and you're like oh my gosh this is the situation i'm in i didn't realize it i I didn't realize that you know these people were such dominant players and i couldn't switch the people away from them i didn't realize that you know so these things are slow to materialize in our minds and in in our businesses and and i think all of us have to approach this with humility Hmm. and say of course and this is you mentioned you know pixie fair stuff a few times we we obsess over this a lot we have ways in which pixie fair does not work is you know we we're we're understanding our market more and more all the time even after 12 years and but but i think we all have to approach this with a degree of uh, caution humility concern maybe a little paranoia and uh, just really (laughs) pay attention to it yeah so yeah, paranoid. There's that famous. I, I've been rereading some Jim Collins recently, and there's that phrase: "Only the paranoid survive." Mm-hmm. Wasn't that Michael yeah. Go from what is it? Intel, I think. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Uh, but I thought I love this this last thought. I mean, we've got to look at the how to in a minute, but just want to say everything's a discovery process. That was your phrase, I think. I mm-hmm. really love that. It's such a corrective to the idea that, ironically, on the Amazon platform, which is so developed through experiment, many of which fail even for the great Jeff Bezos, yeah. um, that people try to go in, use a tool, and then get it right from the beginning, first time, and then put a lot of money into something when mm-hmm. they have no experience, they don't know yeah. market. I think, as you said, the humility to know you're going to often get it wrong, and the willingness to experiment are, are two mindsets that are yeah. too rare, particularly amongst people who sell on Amazon, but just yeah. in general in business. And I love that. Really, really important. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I hope your nines aren't too blown. Nine questions about your TAM in 35 minutes, I make that. <laughs> That's quite a lot to absorb. But I hope that in the end, these things clarify 
if not, you know, initially simplify things for you. As I said to Jason, I find that there's a lot of people implicitly talking about total addressable market and related ones. You may have heard the word SAM or SOM, serviceable, serviceable addressable market, which is really normally for businesses that are geographically constrained, which is why, you know, Jason being, of course, the smart guy is perfectly aware of the term, but chose not to address that. That may be another related metric you've heard or SOM, which is the serviceable, obtainable market, which is really what we're talking about. Whatever terms you're using, I think it comes down to a size of market that is out there for a particular type of product or service, uh, obviously products in the case of e-commerce. And then also how much of that you could take and is it a wise thing to take? So really for me, some great, great questions, really the committed or switchable fractured versus fractal, a nice distinction there. Dominated versus undominated niches whether you've already served quite a lot of people and they don't like your product and that is a problem in certain markets and the loyalty question also very very interesting and then finally the one of about winnability from a, a from a competitor and then last and not least the trends question is it a hot trend is it just a fad is it something that's died and actually the idea that you could even make good money in a dying market as long as it's dying slowly enough but of course then i guess that implies that you're going to have to take market share off somebody else so there's lots to discuss and think through i would just urge you to go back through this list and with a pen and paper you can also check out our summaries at theecommerceleader.com where we take fairly summary show notes by design because really we wanted to listen to the episodes because the the back and forth discussion it's designed to stimulate your own thinking. These are not little bite-sized wins. They're not going to be easy, quick parts of your tactical operations. But in the way that you approach your market selection, and everybody knows that from startup to you know really established sellers and e-commerce leaders, that it is a critical question. We hope that by infusing your process of market selection, with this thinking that we're going to help you get a more robust, more grounded and more strategy driven way of finding your market. So I sincerely wish you uh, great luck in applying, the, applying this stuff. I think if you just take those simple nine questions and apply them to markets you're considering, you're going to find it very, very useful. I'm personally going to be working with a client who's considering expanding to a new marketplace with an existing product line. And I want to be applying some of these myself because I think they're extremely practical, implementable if that's the word, implementable questions and really thought-provoking as well. So thank you so much for joining us and listening. As ever, don't forget to subscribe. We're getting an increasing monthly download trend every single month from the podcast at the moment, which is great. So come and join the people that are finding us on any podcast app. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please don't forget to give us a rating so you can just give us a star rating, even without writing a review. Although, of course, if you feel moved to write a review, that would be great. It takes quite a lot of time, energy and money to create these things for you. And all we're asking is, is a bit of feedback or recognition through reviews and of course subscriptions and your attention and, and most of all I thank you for giving us your attention this is not in easy stuff this is intellectually challenging but I think you'll find this is stuff that if you get it right or even half right it's really going to change your business and make you the best e-commerce leader you can be thanks for listening that was the e-commerce leader podcast with Michael Vesey in London England and Jason Miles in Seattle Washington if you liked this content, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. For free resources, including PDFs and videos on topics like traffic, products and sales channels, just go to www.the.com.
ecommerceleader.com. No hyphens, just as it sounds. Thanks so much for listening.